2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, actually 1 through 16. We'll start with reading 1 through 16. 2 Samuel chapter 1 in your Old Testament, I've shared with you before, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel had a profound influence on my life. Uh, early on when I was in college, uh, my freshman year, uh, at a very debauched place, I started reading the Bible. Uh, it was the Bible my church had given me as a senior in high school. I'd never read the Bible. Um, I'd maybe memorized one or two verses. Um, maybe. But I certainly had not read the Bible. Um, I believed the gospel. Uh, I knew Christ died for my sins. I was trusting him. I didn't know much about the faith. I didn't know much about being a Christian. And I started reading the Bible, and it just literally changed my life. Uh, the next five years, uh, I read the Bible actually through every year and just profoundly impacted me. But it started with First and Second Samuel. These were the first books I began with because I wanted to begin with David, and uh, I was captivated. Second Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who had told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. Behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him, and when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and at I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. We'll stop there and pick it up in just a minute. Have you ever taken someone news and you had hoped that it would be good news, but it turned out from their perspective to be bad news? That's what David is going to deal with here. Actually, it's this Amalekite servant believes he's going to be bringing David good news because essentially it's pretty well known that David has been fleeing from Saul and essentially living in exile, kind of on the run, that Saul has been trying to kill David over and over again, particularly if this Amalekite, we don't know really anything about his background, but he probably or likely had some connection to Saul's army. That's why he was there. He knows that very likely that David had been running, and he thinks he's bringing David good news when he brings to David the news that Saul is now dead. Not only that, this Amalekite comes to David with proof of Saul's death. He has Saul's crown and Saul's armlet. So he was there, but the story that the Amalekite tells does not line up with the, the account of Saul's death you have in 1 Samuel 31. First of all, in, in, in the account of Saul's death, Saul did not want a foreigner to kill him. He wanted one of his own men to kill him. In fact, he, he was fearful of falling into the hands of the enemy. 
because of what they might do to him. Secondly, the, the scripture clearly says that he fell on his own sword. So this Amalekite servant, whoever this guy is, who was evidently on the battlefield, probably, again there, probably witnessed the death of Saul, collects his crown, collects his armlet, and then presumably escapes before the Philistines overtake him, think that this is going to be good news in the ears of David, that Saul is dead. But look at what happens in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, as did all the men who were with him. This idea of tearing of clothes, like you see in this Amalekite servant, and and now David and his men, this is a sign of mourning. It's a sign of anguish. Interestingly enough, too, in this passage, and I'm not sure how much there is uh, about this here, but it's something worth noting. David, in verse 1, had just returned from striking the Amalekites. The Amalekites are one of these Canaanite peoples who Saul had been charged with eliminating because of their unfaithfulness. Saul failed to do that. That was one of his major failures in his kingship. And here you have an Amalekite coming to David who had just been killing Amalekites. Very odd. Thinking that he's bringing good news. Maybe he's trying to win favor. Maybe he thinks he's going to get on the good side of the king. Verse 12. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now, this is common practice when you're faced with death, this kind of mourning, weeping, and fasting. Uh, Fasting, as you know, is often connected with being faithful to the Lord and seeking the Lord's help, and also connected with mourning. Verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said, said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head, for your your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Look at verse 14, and here's the crux of the issue here. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? The issue is that Saul is the Lord's anointed. He's the one that God placed in the role of king. David more than once had an opportunity to kill Saul and chose not to because David recognized Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was the one that God had put place in place and put in power. And David spared Saul's life. And in fact, David made his men spare Saul's life. There were times when David's men wanted to kill him and had an opportunity to kill him, but David would not allow them to. And in fact, there's times in which they get angry at him for that. That killing a person is a severe crime. Killing a king would be a heinous crime. But killing the Lord's king, that's what this Amalekite is guilty of, or what he claims to be guilty of. Again, I think he's probably lying. Saul fell on his own sword. This Amalekite somehow came upon his body, took his crown and armlet to prove that he had seen him, wanted to take credit for doing supposedly a noble act, but not so. Look what David does to him. He calls one of the young men, go execute him, and he struck him down. That word struck him down is the word to smite. There's going to be a lot of smiting in, first, in, in 2 Samuel. You have it here in 2 Samuel 1. It's in 2 Samuel 2. It's in 2 Samuel 3. It's in 2 Samuel 4. This word appears all through the book of 2 Samuel. There is a lot of killing that happens in this book. 
Now, oftentimes in the Psalms, David prays for God to deal with his enemies. In fact, David prays for God to kill his enemies. David rejoices in the Psalms when his enemies are overthrown. Well, Saul is the worst enemy David has had. What makes Saul different? What makes Saul different? What makes him different is, again, that he is the Lord's anointed. Also, you'll find in David that there are going to be times when people are going to come to David like this Amalekite does, and and they're going to bring David news, and David has them killed. Which, by the way, again, seems barbaric and bizarre to us, but in the ancient world, military generals had the power of capital punishment. Essentially, if one of their troops did something they disapproved of, the general had power over his life and death. Actually, it made for pretty uh, loyal troops. The, the capital punishment, particularly from leaders in the ancient world, was fairly common. And it's going to happen a lot in 2 Samuel. But look at how David responds to this. Look at how David responds to this, beginning in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, he said. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Your mountains, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Your daughters, O Israel, weep over Saul, you clothed with lug- who clothed you with luxurious... I'm sorry, I, I can't read tonight, I apologize. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. This is a lament. Mind David is a musician. He writes many of the psalms. He writes songs. And here, 2 Samuel begins now with a song. Saul, David's seeming enemy, is dead. Jonathan, David's best friend, is dead. And he writes a lament. Notice... It's a lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. Look at verse 18. This was to be an important song in the history of God's people. He said it should be taught to the people of Judah. This is something he wanted them to remember. He wanted them to think back on Saul and on Jonathan in a certain way. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Interesting, the the Old Testament here, David, references another ancient book. The book of Jashar, whatever that is. It's mentioned also in the book of Joshua when it talks about the sun standing still, that that is recorded in the book of Jashar. That here's, here's where the Bible, if you don't believe this resource, go check this other ancient source, <laughs> the book of Jashar. The point being, David wanted this to be remembered. David wanted this song immortalized among the people of God, which it is. This is why in 2018 in South Mississippi, on Sunday night, we're reading the lamentation of Saul and Jonathan. 
Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. So they died on your land. Actually, the word glory there is, would be better understood as beauty. This is not the word glory in the Old Testament that means God's weight or God's significance. It's actually beauty. So notice, David begins by calling the king and his son beauty. How the mighty have fallen. That becomes the refrain of this song. It's also become an idiom in our day and time to refer to something or describe something that was previously powerful and has been brought low. It's kind of demeaning. That essentially, if one of, uh, if one of your friends one, one day is driving a Porsche and then the next year he's driving a Yugo, you would say, oh, how the mighty have fallen. It's in reference originally to Saul as king, Jonathan, his son, great warriors who died. David's lament rebukes the Philistines. Look at verse 20. Tell it not in Gath, that's a Philistine city at this time. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. I'm sorry, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Don't let this be known. Let's, this should not be a time for rejoicing in these pagan cities. Incidentally, if you look at the map of Israel, these places that he mentions, Gath and Eskelon, these are part of the land that God gave to Judah. This is why in 2 Samuel, David is going to be fighting with the Philistines. They're the great enemy of David, and he's going to overcome them. Verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa. He references this because this is the place where Saul died. This is the place of the death of Saul. Again, in Israel, but in control at this time by the Philistines. You mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you. Essentially, let every living thing on your mountains die. This is a curse. It's a curse. Nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. That Saul's body is defiled. Keep in mind, Saul's body is cut to pieces and is scattered through the, the land of the, the Philistines. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. The, the idea there is Saul should have been regarded and treated as a king, but he's treated worse than a criminal. And David just wants the Israelites to remember that. Not only that, but David's lament primarily celebrates Saul and Jonathan, and that's what the rest of the text and the rest of the sermon is about. David celebrates, first of all, Saul. How the mighty have fallen. Look at verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the... The fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul returned not empty. That essentially, Jonathan and Saul took some of them out in this battle. And, and again, if, it's hard for us in our civilized age to understand the warrior's mentality. The warrior's mentality is you want to be successful on the battlefield, which means killing people, which is what Jonathan and Saul set out to do. And David here, essentially in this verse, in verse 22 just references, they did that. The bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. See, he's celebrating them. He's celebrating Saul and Jonathan who died in battle. Now notice what he says about them. Swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Again, if you're a man, what kind of epitaph do you want? What kind of epitaph do you want? How the mighty are fallen, they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. That's a pretty good epitaph. Again, immortalized in the Bible. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. 
who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Now, I want us to take a few minutes now and consider what David says about Saul. Let's consider these words, because to me these are stunning. Because Saul has proven himself to be David's greatest enemy in the world up to this point. Saul is directly responsible for most of the distress in David's life. Saul had tried to kill David numerous times out of jealousy. David had faithfully carried out his duties, and Saul had betrayed him over and over again. And it was a terrible betrayal. I mean, think about it. Doesn't betrayal make you angry? I can think of very little. I mean, to me, betrayal is harder to deal with than death in some cases. Because the betrayal just keeps lingering on. This is painful. And here the king, Saul, this is one of the worst betrayals in Israelite history. Here the king, Saul, used his authority and power not only to betray David, but then to try to kill him. When David is faithfully doing and carrying out his duties. So David fled from his home. So just imagine this. This As a result of Saul's murderous intent, David has fled from his home, left his new wife back at home because she was Saul's daughter. He had been forced to leave his post as a military general where he had enjoyed great success and flee into exile. And where does he go? He goes to live in caves. He lives in the wilderness. He lives in ruins. And you know who he lives with? Other fugitives. Here's David who's innocent and he's living with fugitives. Because of Saul, he has faced serious and severe distress in his life. And David does not hate his greatest enemy. David does not hate his greatest enemy. And my question is how? How does he celebrate Saul? You read 1 Samuel, Saul does not come off as a good guy. He is not a good guy. Quite frankly, none of us are good guys. <laughs> Only Jesus. But you read 1 Samuel, and the author of 1 Samuel paints Saul in a very negative light, by and large. And here you have David celebrating him. How? How does he do that? How does he do that? A few ways. And how can we do that? You remember, friends, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. This is a hard thing to do. Hard thing to do. How does David do it? Well, first of all, he has a God-centered perspective. He has a God-centered perspective. He views all of life through the lens of God's rule, God's sovereignty, that God rules over all, that God has authority. Again, back to this idea of Saul being the Lord's anointed, which had driven David's relationship up to that point with Saul. Look back to 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 26. And look at what David says about Saul here. This is one of those occasions where Saul, David has the chance to kill him. Abishai has the chance to kill him. David doesn't take the opportunity, and David won't allow Abishai to kill him. 1 Samuel 26, 9 and 10, and look why. 1 Samuel 26, 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Notice, he essentially says, God will take care of him. God will strike him. Or he'll die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. Why was Saul in power? 
How did Saul get there? Was it like just some conspiracy among the people to get a king? No, it was more than that. God is the one who chose Saul to be king. Who put Saul into power? God. David understood this. This is what he means by Saul being the Lord's anointed. Incidentally, just as an aside, sometimes you'll hear people misquote and misuse a psalm that says, do not touch the Lord's anointed. That's talking about a king. Charismatics use that to talk about their preachers, and they're wrong. It's a terrible ripping of the text out of context. You'll hear that sometimes if you listen to preachers. They're wrong to say that if they're talking about people now. That's talking about ancient kings. That's what David's dealing with here. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. You let the Lord deal with him. The Lord put him into power, and the Lord can remove him from power. David trusts God to deal with his enemies. Like I said in 2 Samuel, you're going to find times when David will have people in his presence, and David will have them killed. You also have times when David has the power and seemingly the justification to have a person killed, that's scary to say, and chooses not to. Why? His trust in God. Look at 2 Samuel 16. Let me show you a little look ahead in 2 Samuel. This is when David is fleeing from Absalom. So David's world, again, is coming apart here. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 12, he's fleeing from Absalom, and there's an old member of Saul's house who comes out and starts throwing rocks at David. (laughs) Okay, here's essentially the deposed king on the run, and now one of Saul's old cronies comes out and is happy that David is on the run and is throwing rocks at him. And also with David, you have this guy, Abishai, and Abishai says, you can read it yourself, David let me go over there and take his head off. That's what he says. And this is David's reply to his desire to kill him. 2 Samuel 16 and verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David is living his life, whether it be the death of Saul whether it be his being deposed by his own son in light of God is in control and I will trust in him. He has a God-centered perspective. He is focused on God. Secondly, how can David feel this way about Saul? Because David has concern for the people of God. David is not just concerned about himself. He's also concerned about the people of God. You look at verse 19, what he says. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on the high places. He connects here the death of Saul and Jonathan to the beauty of Israel. Then you look at verse 24, and here you see what David sees as the good that Saul had brought to Israel. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, which by the way was a good thing, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. That essentially in David's view, Saul had in some ways been good for the people of Israel, that he had helped them that he had brought them some prosperity and that he had been good for them. You see, David is not just concerned about himself or his position. He is concerned for the people of God and he recognizes that Saul has been used in such a way to help the people of God. The, the, The death of Saul is bad for the people of God. You know what the death of Saul means? It means the victory of the Philistines. It means being under the boot, again, of a oppressive, wicked, foreign conqueror that you've just rebelled against, and you got beat. So this is not a good time for the people of God. This is a bad time in their history. David recognizes that. That's part of what the death of Saul signals 
Now, praise God, there's more to the story. And we've got 2 Samuel, and then we've got Jesus coming, which will be God's ultimate good plan for us. But you see, David's more concerned about God's plan for his people than he is about his own welfare, which brings us to the next thing that I think led David. How can David say these glowing, celebratory things about Saul? David is humble. David is humble, which is one of the primary virtues that comes through over and over again about David in the scripture, his humility. Here's a man who's incredibly capable, incredibly able, but yet he's humble. Where are those people in the world today? The, the, the incredibly capable and able people in the world are, those, are oftentimes very braggadocious or very self-assertive. Not so with David. Not so with, with David. This song is not about how great David's kingship is going to be. David knows he's going to be king. God has made that clear to him. David is not focused on what this is going to get for him, how it's going to get him out of trouble, how it's going to make his life better, how it's going to bring him more comfort, how he's going to bring him to the palace, how it's going to bring him into the, the rulership of the king. This is not about David because he's humble. It's like in 2 Samuel 7 when God makes this promise to David about how one of his descendants will rule forever. David's response is, who am I? Who am I that, that God would give me this incredible grace? David is humble. And it's humility that allows a person to celebrate another even though that person had been their great enemy. He is not self-seeking. It's not about him. It's not about his rights. It's not about what he deserves. It's not about his gratification. It's not about David getting his own desserts. That's not what this song is about. It's about the death of the king, and that is terrible for the people of God. And only a person who is humble can see that and can say that. Well, friends, what about us when a Christian wrongs us? Now, let's talk about a person who is one of the children of God when they wrong us, because they do, and they will, because they're sinners. And we'll wrong them too, very likely. How easy it is for us to resent people. Resentment comes natural, maybe for some of us more than others, I'm sure. Resentment for me just seems to come natural. And it's resentment oftentimes over small things. Even things probably unintended, things that, that Christians have done that were not intended to be malicious. It's easy for me to harbor resentment. And here you have David, living in a foreign land, on the run, in exile, because the king had used his authority against David. And not a whiff of self-exaltation, not a whiff of self-justification. Not, not, not a bit of resentment toward God. And that resentment can linger. You need to have humility. Now let's look at what David says about Jonathan. Verse 26. Actually, the end of verse 25. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. So notice David acknowledges his distress. Distress is normal and natural when you lose your best friend. So, so there's a place, obviously, for sorrow. Being sorrowful is not ungodly or unspiritual. When Saul talks about his friend, I believe it's Epaphroditus, Saul talks about, I'm sorry, Paul talks about a time when Epaphroditus almost died, and Paul says in Philippians that that would have caused him sorrow upon sorrow. So this is what, this is what death does to us when we experience it in life. It causes us distress and it causes us sorrow. We're not saying that's unspiritual or or not, not right. 
David affirms the distress this death causes. But notice what else he says about Jonathan. He celebrates him. And look what he says. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David here speaks of love between men. Now, go back to 1 Samuel 18.1. 1 Samuel 18.1. The book of 1 Samuel highlights the friendship of David and Jonathan, Jonathan being the son of Saul. 1 Samuel highlights the depth of their friendship. 2 Samuel 1, David calls it love. 1 Samuel 18.1, look at how it's described here. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, one thing I need to deal with here that I'm hoping you're not aware of, but it is a reality. One thing I'm sure that you're aware of is how pervasive and prevalent homosexuality has become just in the last 20 years in America. It's bizarre to me. I've got to be careful here because, you know, what, what, I, what, what am I going to, I want to share things that are going to be edifying and helpful to you. There are, there are people within the, there are homosexual people that actually make the argument here that this is one of the instances of homosexual practice in the Bible. Because homosexuals are trying to justify that behavior. Now, I don't have time. I'm not going to take the time now to go through all the Bible and show you very clearly. The Bible clearly denounces homosexuality as a sin. And, you know, for those who would say, well, you know, that's just in the book of Leviticus. And, you know, we don't keep the Old Testament law. I agree we don't keep the Old Testament law. But the reason why I think homosexuality is wrong is not primarily based on Leviticus. It's based on the New Testament. Paul specifically lists homosexuality more than once in lists with other sins. And mind you, he listed along with sins like greed and like anger and like heterosexual sex. It is sinful. The Bible clearly lists it and labels it as a sin. But because it's become so accepted in our country and in the culture in which we live, there are many that are seeking to justify it from the Bible which is simply an impossibility. The Bible is clear on its position about homosexuality. This is one of the texts that they use. And essentially what's happened here is, one of the things our, one of the things our culture has done, it has corrupted and redefined the word love. And that's what you have in play here. Obviously this word love, you understand this is an ancient text. So the word love here, the word David uses to describe his relationship with Jonathan is an ancient word. So you've got to seek out what does this mean when he talks about your love for me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Friends, what, our, what the culture has done, and I'm trying to watch my, my verbiage here, but what the culture has done and the, the, the modern world has done is that it has taken the word love and has used it to define illicit sexual activity. It's just the word love. However, when the Bible uses the word love, it means some very specific things. Incidentally, the depravity of the culture, this is one of the very clear insidious strategies 
the world has employed to corrupt language. You need to be aware of this. They use words like diversity. Any, by the way, anybody against diversity? Probably not. They weren't use words. By the way, any okay, who's the who among you Christians are against love? Who who wants to stand in the way of love? Nobody. Nobody. So you see, if you all you've got to do is re- redefine now what love means because everybody accepts love, every Christian at least. Or the word freedom. I mean, anybody want to take an, take an anybody want to make an argument against freedom? I mean, is freedom a bad thing? Of course we're going to say no. Or liberation. This is one from the 70s. Women's liberation. I mean, is liberation a bad thing? No, it's quite a good thing, actually. Anybody want to make an argument against liberating people? Probably not. But see, what the culture has done is it's taken these words that we value and that communicate things that are important to us, and they've redefined them. And they've done it with love. They've done it with love. So what we as Christians need to do is we need to have, first of all, begin with the right understanding. And then when we, we need to gracefully and kindly explain and teach that right understanding from the Bible to people what it means. Absolutely there's a place for a man loving another man. Doesn't Jesus call us all to love one another? How about the love of... David saying to Jonathan, your love surpasses the love of women. What does he mean by that? Well, he means what the meaning of love is, which is more akin to the idea of faithfulness. More akin to the idea of faithfulness. And there's plenty of divorced men that I personally know that would tell you they have male friends that have been more faithful to them than to some females that they have been married to in the past. Love is more akin to the idea of commitment. Commitment. This is incidentally why, historically, when people are married, they take vows. What is a vow? Is it a feeling? No, a vow is an affirmation of commitment. That's what it is. It's affirming a commitment. If you study love in the Bible, you'll find that love expresses itself in sacrifice. What does love look like? It's sacrificial. Or if you want to find about 15 verbs that describe love, you can look at 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient. It's kind. There's nothing, there's nothing about fi- the physical act of sex in that. And that's where the word has been corrupted by our culture. And so what we have Christ, as Christians have got to do is, using the Bible, explain to people, no, here's what the Bible, really, do you really want to know what love is? As defined by God, your creator? And try to graciously and winsomely teach people the Bible. Because friends, the, the world is teaching them. The world is influencing them. It is amazing. It is amazing to me. Well, I won't go off on that rail. It's a, it's a, it's a big rail and I'm not going to chase it. So you could see if you understand love as it's biblically understood as an act of sacrifice, commitment, faithfulness, how David could say to Jonathan, your love has surpassed the love of women. All you've got to do is read 1 Samuel. There's nothing illicitly physically sexual about their relationship. In fact, David has wives. He has children by wives. Jonathan has children. That's just a, 
a bogus attempt to try to justify what the Bible clearly says is sinful, playing on a word. Now, final point tonight. A lot could be said about that, but moving on. (laughs) So David is talking about the death of his best friend, the best friend that he loved. And look at what he says. He celebrates. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Very pleasant have you been to me. How the mighty have fallen. See what he calls Jonathan? Mighty. That's a tribute. Friends, if, if we lose someone we love, one of the most difficult things in life to go through, isn't there a tendency toward bitterness about that? I could certainly understand how there could be. Again, maybe I'm more prone to bitterness and resentment than others. I probably am. But what we've got to do, just very simply, is we need to choose blessing rather than bitterness. This is one of the things I think David teaches us in this song. And this, just the best way I can say it is to choose blessing rather than bitterness. And what I mean is to bless God rather than being bitter about what God has brought about. To bless God. It's what David does here. This is, David is in dis- David is distressed about this death. That's understandable. But he also celebrates and blesses God for the greatness of Jonathan. Like what Job says in Job 121, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To bless God and to celebrate the good things we have rather than, rather than fixating on the remorseful things that happen in our life. This is a bad thing that's happened. The death of Saul and Jonathan at the hands of an enemy army is a distressing thing. But notice what David does. He celebrates what the Lord has given. He laments. But in this lament, he celebrates them. This is an important lesson for us to learn in a life filled with loss, right? This This is just a major part of our life, dealing with loss. I mean, everything that we own or have here in this world, we will lose. Right? Naked, I came into the world, and naked, I'm going to go. I'm not taking anything with me. So this life is characterized by loss and its fallenness. And, and the reality is, as you go through life, you're either going to be bitter or you're going to, be celebra- or you're going to celebrate the good things God has done. And I think what David shows us here, and again, keep in mind, a guy who's been through some terrible distresses himself, He can teach us how to deal with the loss of a best friend, a person that he loved very, very deeply. Or maybe when our plans don't come together as we had imagined. Isn't that part of life? Or as we had desired? Or as we had wished? Or as we had prayed? Can we celebrate the good that God has done? There's a lot of good in this passage about Jonathan and even about Saul. And that's what David does. He's not bitter about that jerk Saul, what a scumbag. It's because of him I've been living in ruins and caves. This is not David's attitude or heart. He's praising God for what God has done through Saul and through Jonathan, and he is able to celebrate them. Let's pray. God, help us to learn from your word that we would consider what you say here about Saul and Jonathan and David's attitude toward them. And God, that we would learn to view life and our relationships from your perspective. 
God, that we would be more concerned about your people than ourselves. God, that we would be humble. And Lord, that we would choose to bless you rather than to wallow in bitterness, which will do us no good, but will poison our souls and harm us for the rest of the brief time that we have and harm and affect negatively those around us. So God, help us to be thankful for the blessings you have bestowed upon us and not lament the rest of our days for what has been taken away. God, give us strength to do this, to learn from David these important lessons in Jesus' name. Amen.